in the home stretch for the book of Exodus. This is the 39th sermon on Exodus. So we will be finishing up at the end of the month. And we've come to, uh, I know I've said this several times, but I'm going to say it once again, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. So, and uh, it's that way because of a few specific verses. So we're going to sort of focus in on uh, those. Uh, I'll read it as we go through it and uh, as we explain it. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need to be reminded of what makes God great. We need the glory of the Lord. We need to be reminded that Exodus isn't just history, but a redemption story. Thank you that Exodus points us to our Redeemer. We need him. We need the salvation he offers. Thank you for the way you reveal yourself in your grace and mercy. We ask that you would teach us from it, show us our sin, show us our Savior, show us the glory of your grace, exalt yourself in our eyes, enable us by faith to embrace your truth and to grow us in grace by it. We pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now you may have noticed a few things as we've gone through the book of Exodus. When you look at the actions of the Israelites in the book of Exodus, I forgot to turn that on. Um, there are ways, when you look at these actions of the Israelites, that you can tell if you've not just had a belief in God, but you've actually had a sense and experience of the reality of God, who he is and what he's done, if you have actually known his love. Because if you've truly experienced God and known God and experienced his love, then you'll be really slow to mock and criticize and laugh at the Israelites. Because that's our natural inclination as we read this. You know, the, the Israelites have just been through the incident with the golden calf. And they had moved from being the spiritually chosen people to being spiritually frozen. Those terms have been applied to other groups in history. The, uh, and you read this story, and sometimes you can't help but think, these people are idiots. You know, they're fools. How could they not believe in God? The plagues, the Red Sea, the manna, fire by night, that cloud by day. How could they forget that stuff? I mean, didn't they see the movie? It was unbelievable. I mean, I don't know exactly if it was like that, but Cecil B. DeMille, DreamWorks, and Ridley Scott all made it look pretty amazing. And we read these stories and we think, can you imagine having those kinds of experiences and seeing God work directly in your life, right in front of you? You know, the parting of the sea, being freed from slavery. How could they possibly forget? Even, you know, just months later, I mean, we don't know exactly, but at some period of time, how could they say, well, maybe there isn't a God? 
I don't know if there's a God. And our inclination is just to read the story and think, these people are dumb. They're morons. And if you do that, and I have done that, but when you do that, you, you tend to think, this would never happen to me. And you know right then, you don't really know God. Because if you really knew who God is and what he's done, if you've actually experienced God, then you would know that's exactly what your heart would do. If you've actually experienced God, you know that you know, there's those times and he feels so real to you and you think, I'll never forget this. This is awesome. And you might say something like, Lord, why was I ever afraid? Why did I ever feel so bad about myself? Why did I ever feel so hopeless, Lord? Now that I know you're real, I'll never be afraid again. I'll never be discouraged again. I'll never forget. But you will. In fact, some of us right here can say, God has already done astounding things for us, amazing things for us. He saved you from overwhelming things and frightening things. He intervened at certain places. He protected you. And your life, the sea has sort of metaphorically parted. And yet today, your heart is cold. Your heart is hard. You're frozen. Some of you show up, and yet you're completely indifferent to God. He's just not here. I mean, he's outside. He exists. I know that. I know he's, he's out there somewhere. I believe in him, but I have no sense of his presence. We're absolutely like the Israelites. And if you've experienced God, then you know we're just like the Israelites. You know, when this happens with new Christians in particular, you know, and all of a sudden they feel distant or cold or indifferent and tend to get just slammed. And what I mean by all of this is we tend to underestimate the power of spiritual entropy. Spiritual entropy. Do you know what entropy is? The physicist will say that it's that thing which goes to disorder. In thermodynamics, it means there's randomness in the system. There's a lack of order, predictability, and a gradual decline into disorder. I actually don't know if thermodynamics says that. I know Wikipedia says that thermodynamics says that. But that's entropy. You know, the reason you take a turkey out of the oven and you set it down on the counter and it immediately starts getting cold, it's because of entropy. It's running down energy-wise, heat-wise. And if you leave it there too long, it'll start to stink. And if you leave it there long enough, the bugs will show up. And eventually the rats will come. That's entropy. In other words, if you do nothing to the meat, uh, pretty soon it will be an absolute stench and it becomes a health hazard. And a lot of us think that only applies in the physical world. And I'm trying to say it applies in the spiritual world. You've had this wonderful experience with God at some point in your life. But if you do nothing about it, you just sort of expect it's going to be there when I wake up in the morning. 
then you misunderstand and you underestimate the power of spiritual entropy. And what happens when uh, we have our first experience of this is usually we can't believe that we've forgotten. We can't believe how cold we've become. We can't believe how far away God seems to be. And then we say, well, maybe I'm not a Christian after all. And here's how you know you need renewal, but here's also how you know that you're a Christian. And the way you know that you're a Christian, even if it's been a long time since you felt God's love, you've tried to move on to other things, you go back to those things that make you feel good, and now they don't. So what's going on? This doesn't give me the same feeling it used to. These, these things have changed. Oh, no, no, no. You changed. Your heart changed. Because once God's come into your life and come into your heart, even when you turn away, even when you're ungrateful, even when you and God are on the outs, you've still been permanently changed. And you stay miserable until you get God back. Because anything else you turn to doesn't fill the void. So you can't go back to some other thing from your past. You don't get the rush out of making money. You don't get the rush out of relationships. You don't get the rush out of having uh, power and control like you used to. You don't get the rush out of things that used to give you meaning uh, in life. And you say, what happened? Well, what happened is your heart changed. Your heart has become stretched because God was there. It's been enlarged, and it will never be filled again until you get God back. So you see, we have this need for continual renewal because we're just like the Israelites. And you have to realize that when you read these stories, you think, those guys are dumb. We're actually talking about us because they're just like us. The other thing we need uh, to learn about our need for renewal is not just that our heart is enlarged and can only be filled by God, but that we continually lose him. Because that's the way spiritual entropy works. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34. We're actually at the end of the story of the golden calf and its aftermath, which is, runs from chapters 32 to 34. And I think it's ironic that right in the middle of this big, long section in Exodus, all the way back to chapter 25, to the end of the chapter, which is all about worship, there's this section, three chapters, right in the middle that's about idolatry. Of course, that's not a mistake. It's there precisely because that's the point that Moses is trying to make. Our hearts are idol factories. And even as God is giving instructions on worship while Moses is on the mountain, the children of Israel are down in the valley worshiping idols. So this is sort of a standing warning against our own fickle hearts and the power of spiritual entropy. <coughs> So turn to the beginning of 34. We'll start with verses 1 through 9. Where after this whole scene with the golden calf, much to our surprise, we learn that God is gracious to his people. God is gracious. That's the first blank there in your outline. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. 
be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here's the key verses. These verses are going to be repeated about a hundred times in the rest of the Bible. We heard them in our responsive reading this morning. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So here's the other thing. Look at Moses. You want to see how to be a good friend? You can look at Moses. Moses cares about his people. Moses sees that his people are stiff-necked. Most every pastor I know has probably prayed that. These people are stiff-necked. You know, you, not me. The, uh... But Moses sees there's all sorts of brokenness. Uh, and his people. And what does he do? He goes to talk to God. See, the people are not on speaking terms with God, but Moses is. And that's because the children of Israel are perfectly aware that they deserve to be blasted into oblivion. And in precisely this context, God says, you're now ready. Because of what you now know about yourself, and because of what you now know about deserving judgment. And so now you're ready to learn something about me. And that's that I'm more gracious than you could ever possibly imagine. It is absolutely impossible for the children of Israel, based on God's words about himself, based on their display of just outright faithlessness and the whole experience of the golden calf, to think that they've been chosen or redeemed or kept by anything other than God's grace. The whole chapter is God speaking to people through a megaphone. There's nothing in your hands you bring. There's nothing in you that compelled me. In fact, there's everything in you that could repel me. The grace comes from me. The salvation comes from me. This whole passage is a reminder of God's grace. The Lord draws near. He reveals his character in a striking way. He deliberately chooses to be gracious. He's not compelled to be gracious. He's not obligated to be gracious. He's just gracious. It's not a response to the children of uh, Israel and how they've acted. It's not because they're so lovable or they're so obedient. It's not based on the circumstances of the golden calf. In fact, it's in spite 
of the circumstances of the golden calf. God's grace comes from him. And he says, I'm merciful and gracious. Therefore, I choose to be merciful and gracious to you. That's amazing. These people just rejected God. And God says, I am merciful and gracious. Furthermore, this highlights the security of God's people in their relationship with him. If our security with God rests in our own deeds, in our own sincerity, in our own efforts, in our own consistency, in our own work of perseverance, we're done for. That's one of the things that comes through very clearly here. Our security does not rest in us. This passage highlights the fact that our security is based on something outside of us. It's based on something in God, something in um, the work of Moses, his mediator. Because of that, our inconsistency doesn't have the last word. This passage is talking to us all about grace. It is showing us that God saves us by grace. And in the midst of this passage is this fundamental revelation of God's character. He says some things about himself that said are going to be repeated throughout the rest of Scripture. We're treated to an astonishing, divine self-revelation of the character of God. The Lord himself draws near, and as he does, he reveals his essential character in a dramatic way. And this passage gives us an essential revelation of the name, of the character, of the moral nature, and the heart of God. The name of the Lord is an expression of who he is and what he does. And in verses 6 and 7, we have, as I said, this astonishing divine self-revelation. It's really God preaching about God. God telling his people what he's like. You know, the passage comes and talks about God uh, coming and standing there and passing by. None of that is described by Moses. He says, the Lord passed before me. Now, if you'd been there, and you'd been writing this, and the Lord come to you and stood next to you and passed by you, you'd be writing about seven chapters of that description. But not Moses. What's the next word? And proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. In this passage, God's standing next to Moses, but all Moses tells you is what he said. You can't find a stronger endorsement of the centrality of the word of God in growth and grace than that. You couldn't find a stronger endorsement of the importance of preaching than you find in that. The content of this proclamation gives guidance to both preachers and uh, members. First of all, preaching must be foremost about God. It's a revelation about God. It doesn't mean that we don't speak about anything else. It doesn't mean we don't speak about the Christian life. It doesn't mean that we don't speak about the way of salvation. It doesn't mean that we don't speak about Christian ethics. But it does mean that we speak about everything in light of God, who he is and what he does in a thoroughly God-centered way. Notice that when God manifests himself on Mount Sinai, the content of his revelation to Moses is all about himself. It's all about God himself. That's the answer the children of Israel need to have. 
They need to know about God. Now, they may think they need to know about a lot of other things, but God says what you really need to know about is me. That's the most practical thing you could ever learn, knowing me. That's what you need to know. You need to know God. And finally, at the end of this section, Moses, in turn, pleads God's character. He pleads for God to be merciful because God has just announced himself to be merciful. He prays back God's revelation. He asks God to do exactly what God says he does, to pardon, to forgive, to be patient, to be slow to anger, to show compassion. Moses is praying back God's revelation of God's own character back to God. He's praying scripture back to God. Often on Sunday morning, our elders and deacons uh, will get up here and they'll do just that. They'll pray the scriptures. It's a wonderful pattern of prayer to pray the scriptures back to God. The Puritans didn't make that up. They'd read Exodus. It's what Moses did. And because God forgives and because God's merciful and because God is gracious, therefore, even though they don't deserve it, we see that God renews his covenant. Starting at verse 10, God renews his covenant. This is a really long passage. I'm going to read the very beginning and the very end. The middle is uh, all the laws, um, and they're all repeated from elsewhere in Exodus. So I'm just going to read the middle and the end, which is sort of the bookends. He said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as uh, have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And then the very end, verse 27, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread or drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So that first section, verses 10 and 11, is sort of the preamble. It's God's overarching statement about the covenant. He's in covenant with his people, revealed to them at Mount Sinai but they've already broken it. Even before Moses can get down from the mountain, they've already broken the law. So now God indicates that in his great mercy, he's going to continue to walk with them despite their sin. So even in this, we see something of the grace of God. And so we have this renewal of the covenant. It's a reinstatement of Israel and their favored relationship with God. And we see all the marks of a covenant-making ceremony. There are direct parallels between Exodus 34 and all the way back to Exodus 19 and 20. It's a reestablishment of the covenant inaugurated with God's own voice. The first time there were stone tablets, here's their stone tablets. The first time there was a proclamation of the Lord's name, Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God. <coughs> And then we have this command, proclamation of the Lord's name. And the commands come again. And starting in verse 10, the demands of the covenant are remade just as they were first made back in Exodus 20. So there's tons of parallels between the first time the law came and now. The shattered tablets of Exodus 20 are now replaced. The original text written by the finger of God is being rewritten. 
Moses is ready to meet God in the morning. The first time at Mount Sinai, he was told to meet God in the morning, uh, just as before. This time, one of the differences is Aaron doesn't go with him, which makes sense in light of Aaron's role in the golden calf incident, the idolatrous rebellion against God. So the mountains put off limits now. It was put off limits then. They can't even let their animals graze in front of the mountain. So we have all these parallels between the covenant-making ceremony in Exodus 19 and 20, and here the covenant-renewal ceremony of Exodus 34. And now we also get God's grace in promising to do miracles. He calls them marvels. Miracles that have never been done for any other nation. And he promises to drive their enemies out of the land that he's going to give them. It's quite extraordinary. Israel has betrayed him. Israel has rejected his mediator. Israel has worshipped false gods. And Israel's basically coming, crawling back on hands and knees, begging not to be destroyed. And God says, I will remain in covenant with you. You will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will do things for you that have never been done for any other people. And there's no way that anybody in Israel can say, you know, I'm pretty good. God's doing things for me. He's never done for anybody else. It's because I'm such a good person. Nobody can say that. They're all bad. They've all rebelled. They've all betrayed God. There's no one in Israel that can think that way. It's all the grace of God. So this passage begins by reminding us that salvation is all of grace, and now it's reminding us that perseverance is all of grace, and our faithfulness itself is a result of God's grace. And then the middle section, which I didn't read, we see all the specific terms of the covenant. The requirements are stressed for what it takes to walk with God. Very typical for covenants in the ancient Near East to have promises and obligations. But these are a little bit different than any of the other ones we've read. You think we're just going to get the Ten Commandments again. But we don't. We get some of them, but not all of them. And we get a number of these lesser ceremonial laws. And so there's a lot of discussion. They're like, this can't be quite right. You know, there's all this stuff about don't boil the goat in the mother's milk and all that kind of weird stuff showing up again. So what's going on here? And I think what's going on here is this whole section, all these laws, both the ceremonial laws and the moral laws, all are regarding worship. Deals with covenant loyalty and right worship. Think about what has Israel done when they went after the golden calf? They had shown betrayal to God, disloyalty to God. They worshipped false gods. What has Israel done? They had worshipped God not in accordance with his commands. What had they done? They had appointed for themselves a festival that God had not commanded. So here God's basically saying in all these verses, worship me, only me, worship me according to my commands, and worship me at the festivals or the feasts that I have appointed. The Ten Commandments aren't repeated. All the other moral directives that Moses has heard aren't repeated. What's repeated is, Worship me, first commandment. 
Worship me my way, second commandment. Worship me at my appointed feasts, second commandment. It's all about the worship of God. God is reminding Israel that you were created to worship me. And then he repeats some of the laws that help them to worship him and to worship him alone. And he loves his people with a fiercely protective love. And to safeguard their love for him, he gives them these guidelines for staying in covenant love. He starts by telling the Israelites what not to do. Don't make a covenant with people who worship other gods. Don't make idols. Don't worship at pagan altars. By obeying these commands, the Israelites would remain spiritually separated from false worship. This would help protect their love for God. In addition, he tells them some things he wants them to do, things that help them to stay in love with God. And it's very interesting. We summarize these sort of in three principles. Maintain a regular pattern of worship, enter God's holy Sabbath rest, and offer God your best. And perhaps the main thing here is to maintain a regular pattern of corporate worship. The Israelites nurture their love for God by gathering to worship him primarily at three pilgrim festivals, or feasts, every year. And Exodus mentions uh, these annual festivals. And if God has given us a feast to keep, it's the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate today. Like the Passover, the Lord's Supper reminds us that God's provided us a sacrifice for our sins. Like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Lord's Supper reminds us to sweep the sin out of our life. Like the Feast of Weeks, the Lord's Supper reminds us that God has provided bread for us, living bread. And like the Feast of Ingathering, the Lord's Supper reminds us to look forward to that final harvest when we will feast with Christ in the kingdom of God. The Lord's Supper, which we're about to celebrate, is part of the pattern of regular corporate worship that God has given us to help us stay in love with him. One of the reasons we celebrate this sacrament regularly is to reassure us that we're in a covenant relationship with God. Remember the early themes way back last fall, the beginning of Exodus, when God told uh, the people he wanted to bring them out of Egypt? Remember we said why? To do what? Why was he going to bring them out? To worship me. Here we are again. Remember Jesus, John 4, the woman at the well. He said, God is seeking what? Worshippers. That's an Old Testament theme. God reveals that in Exodus. And he shows us again, he graciously renews the covenant. He says, worship me, worship me alone, worship me my way, worship me at my appointed times according to my appointed feast. God has created us to worship. Worship is central, it's not peripheral to life. It's what we're made for. And it begs the question, are you a worshiper of God? That's what God's calling you to be, a worshiper of God. He's first. He's the thing you go after. He's the thing you want. He's the thing you desire. He's your great end. He's your goal. That's what this whole covenant renewal ceremony of Exodus 34 is all about. The Israelites had fallen into idolatry, and yet in his wonderful mercy and grace, God has forgiven their sin and given them a fresh opportunity to live for his glory. And because God forgives and because God is merciful and because God is gracious, therefore, even though they don't deserve it, we see that God's presence 
is with his people. God's presence. Starting at verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them, and afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put a veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So that's kind of odd. Haven't done the veil thing lately. Don't even own a veil. See, Moses' face is shining. The striking thing, it appears, did Moses is clueless about this. You know, he doesn't come out and say, oh, that's interesting. He just shows up. He's totally unselfconscious. I don't even know if that's a word. It is now. His closeness to God, his communion with God, leaves him utterly humble. You know, if a modern minister today had this kind of experience with communion with God so that his face was shining, tomorrow morning he'd be on Oprah selling books. But not Moses. He doesn't even know. He doesn't understand why everybody's running away as he comes down the mountain. Show me an arrogant spiritual leader, and I'll show you someone who is unfamiliar with the presence of God. But show me someone who's dwelling in the presence of God, and I'll show you a humble person. Moses has been communing with God, and he's humble. There's a huge lesson in that. If we look at towards the end of this, verses 30 to 33, we see the response of the people. This is great. Moses is clueless, but their response is pretty dramatic. Moses is feared as he comes down the mountain. The reaction of Israel to the shining face of Moses was precisely their reaction the, the first time to God's manifestation uh, and his voice at Mount Sinai uh, before. They're afraid to come near. They run away. They're scared to death. They have to be called back. And it's interesting. There is a play on words here um, that you get in the Hebrew that you don't really get in the English. In the original, the word shown, Moses' face shown, is the Hebrew word karen, K-A-R-A-N. Now, the word for horn is the Hebrew word karen, K-E. R-E-N. And what makes it difficult, there ain't no vowels in Hebrew. And so there's this intentional play on words. And the mediator that the people had built themselves, the golden calf, had horns. But the mediator that God has given to the people, 
His face shines with the radiance of God's presence. What's God doing? He's saying, there's your mediator. It's inanimate. It's made out of trinkets. It couldn't talk, couldn't walk, couldn't lead, couldn't mediate. In fact, it just about brought down my judgment on you. Here's my mediator, Moses, and his face shines because he's been in the presence of God. The very thing you want your homemade mediator to do to bring God's presence almost cost you God's presence forever. Now I'm sending my mediator back to you, and he's shining with the presence of my glory. It's his wonderful play on words. God's saying, this is the real mediator. This is my mediator. You need him. But there's another thing recorded here, and that's that it's not a one-time thing. It didn't just happen when Moses went up on the mountain. Apparently it happened every time Moses went in to commune with God. he come back out, his face was shining. Verse 34 says, when Moses is communing with God and then delivering God's word to the people, we're told that his face continued to shine and his face was unveiled. When he's in God's presence, his face is unveiled. When he's speaking God's words, his face is unveiled. And even though that frightens them, it's designed to attest to the message and the messenger and assure them of God's presence. You know, Moses could have simply delivered God's word to the people without any sort of physical illumination. But this divine glow of his face gives the message greater meaning and depth. In other words, the glory of God in the face of Moses proves that this is real. That's how they know Moses met with God. He'd come out. It would be a sad day when Moses goes in to commune with God and he comes out and his face isn't shining. And the words coming from Moses' mouth are not his words. They're God's words. The commands are God's commands. The glory of God on the face of Moses gives the people physical evidence that they are hearing from God. And of course, the radiance of Moses is something I think clearly foreshadows the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. When you read this passage, Moses is on the mountain, coming down from the mountain with glory shining in his face. You have to think about the transfiguration passages in Matthew and Luke. When Jesus' glory is shown on the mountain, who's he talking to on that mountain? Moses. There's no mistaking that. The shining face of Moses clearly foreshadows the radiant glory of Jesus. It's the whole point the Apostle Paul is making in 2 Corinthians. He points to the greater glory of the gospel, a glory greater than that shown in Moses' face. There it says, 2 Corinthians 3. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? It goes on like that for ten more verses. It means that a person turns to Christ, he has spiritual eyesight to behold the glory of God. Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
We behold the glory of God in the good news that Jesus died for my sins. We behold the glory of God in the gospel when we're rescued from our slavery to sin and our inability to keep God's law. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus when we uh, come to Christ and are converted. We behold the glory of God when we're born again. Paul says this glory in the gospel is what the glory of Exodus 34 <coughs> what the glory in Moses' face. This is what it's all really about. There's greater glory in the gospel of Jesus. So now that you know this, or have at least heard it, what difference does it make? You know, I like to say, well, we can't ever forget that God is gracious to you, but I started this sermon by saying you'll probably forget let me remind you again. Grace is who God is. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Grace is what God does. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. And grace is what you need. Psalm 130, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God's grace is not a theory, a bunch of words, or stories from a long time ago. It's the reality upon which your life depends. Grace is the reality that anchors you into the life and death of Jesus Christ. He has come for us. He's come for you. You need help from outside of yourself. No other God will save people like us. The God who passed by Moses in glory is the God whom we need. We need a compassionate God who cares about our situation. We need a gracious God who gives us what we don't deserve. We need a patient God who won't give up on us. We need a loving God who's faithful to his promises. We need a forgiving God who takes away our sin. The wonderful truth of the gospel is that the God of Exodus has given himself to us in Jesus. And that Jesus invites you to his table to come and meet with him. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.